0: If you are just tuning in, we encourage you to go back and listen from episode one. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised.
2: To submit a theory, a tip, a question or comment, please email us at tips at directappealpodcast.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 732-510-0996. As a reminder, Melanie will be answering your questions in a bonus episode. So don't forget to submit your questions by July 31st via email or voicemail. Previously on Direct Appeal.
1: Perhaps what's more important than what she heard is what she didn't hear. Power tools, a gunshot, anything like that. He had left her and ended their marriage much in the same way he had left me. This is what he does. If this dude were allowed to get up there and say, yeah, he'll talk to me about this. I couldn't buy a gun. He wanted one. She basically wrecks the prosecution's timeline. She could not tell if his remains had been refrigerated. If you're saying that this nurse is knowledgeable and knows how to cut a person up, then why would you do it the way she did it? It just doesn't make any sense. Of all the blood and gore that it
3: would take to cut somebody into pieces, all they could find was, I wouldn't even call it a sliver of skin. It was very small.
0: This is episode 11. A gamble. On last episode, we examined the defense, Melanie's team. They call character witnesses and they call a couple of other witnesses who may have been helpful, but it turns out they were limited in their testimony. So today we're going to get into um, some of the other evidence that the defense presented, some of the evidence they did not present. And again, another expert who may have helped their case. So let's talk about an issue that began right from the defense in their opening statements. In the opening, Stephen Toronto mentioned that Bill had a gambling issue. And he made a production of saying that, you know, if you don't pay your debts on the street, you get shot here and here. You know, one in the chest, one in the head. And this was pretty dramatic. But he also told the jury to hold us to our promises. And so he was going to have to substantiate this gambling and these um, monetary issues. Did it come up at all
2: at trial? Not really. So that's not a good trial move to say it in your opening statements. You would usually the opening statements contains like your
0: it's the silver roadmap bullet to where or you're going to yeah. go, right? So the record showed that there was gambling, yes, and that was established. But a forensic accountant would have shown larger amounts of money coming in and out of. Melanie and Bill's joint accounts. So we actually have bank records. Melanie's, let's say her friends, family too, she's had a team of people that have been working on this um, since she was convicted, you know, who've been examining records and trying to find these inaccuracies. Remember, one of her friends was the one who found those internet searches that were so damning and kind of probed us to delve into their records. So now we have an analysis of their accounts. So what do we have? We have tax returns. And we have all the banking records, so we looked at the joint bank account records. Plus, we looked at Bill's consulting timesheets. So, remember, Bill was working full time, but he was also a part-time consultant. We have copies of the 2003 tax returns, and so we did a little bit of our own analysis. And what we found are a couple of issues here. First of all, it seems that Bill did not deposit his whole salary into their joint bank account.
2: Well, I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry if you said this, but they have other bank accounts that you know of, or it's only the joint? So I don't know of the other bank accounts. Mm. And so it's possible. We know it's possible that he had another bank account. Does Melanie, did Melanie um, talk about this at all? Did you ask her if they had, did they have their own separate accounts as well as a joint account? I don't believe,
0: uh, I don't believe so. Okay. However, <laughs> you know, we do know uh, spouses keep their own accounts. Yeah. So here's the thing though. For let me just go into this first and then mm-hmm. you can, you know, they had a joint bank account and that's the one in which their salaries went primarily into. Um, so they were sharing, that's the bills, the account where everything's going in and out of. But it looks like if you take a look at the 2003 tax return, it actually looks like the salaries, Bill's whole salary was not going in there. So on the tax return, it looked like Bill McGuire, um, his salary was 96962 for the year. That's pretty good. Especially yeah. in 2003. Right. So I think that was from um, uh, maybe NJIT. I'm not mm-hmm. sure, but th- that was his salary. They hiring? No. <laughs> 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 Melanie's salary that year was 69434 So after you deduct the federal, state, Social Security, Medicare, everything, the net pay would have been $119,416, which comes to an average monthly pay of like close to $10,000, just mm. under 10000 However, the average monthly pay recorded for the joint bank account in 2003 was $7,362, which leaves this big difference. Like, where's the $2,500? $2,500 a month seems to be missing from the salaries. And if you, you know, aggregate that, it's about $31,000 a year. Hmm. So Bill was consulting. So his consulting fee was uh, an additional like $33,000. So it looks like this number is almost... On par with the consulting fee, Mm. which definitely suggests, at the very least, that he's got a separate bank account for sure. Now, is that. Or a suitcase under his bed with money? Right, it, it suggests something that he's not putting his whole salary. in. It seems that there are thirty to thirty-three thousand dollars a year
2: missing, mm-hmm. um, and that's a lot per month. So, could it be? This might be silly, but could it be in like a five twenty-nine, like a college account for the kids? So that's
0: what I was thinking. The same thing. Um, I, I mean, you might add, he might keep salary for something else. You know, maybe yeah, there's something for the kids, something for his wife, or not repairs. even that. I
2: mean. Not even having a separate account, but like people have a joint, they have a checking, a savings, a primary checking, a secondary, you know what I mean? Usually there's more than one account. It looks like they had one very primary account though, right? They did. This so, was their yeah. primary for sure. But I do not I do
0: think there's a suggestion here that there's money missing, but mm-hmm. is it an ominous one? We don't really know that. Mm-hmm. I think there could be a, a number of reasons yep. why he might have another account in which he's putting this secondary salary in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it does definitely suggest that there's got to be other bank accounts and there's money elsewhere. So that's one issue we had when we looked at the records. The second issue that comes up is that they were, this is to me, way more interesting there were very large amounts of money deposited into and withdrawn from the joint bank account for which there's no accounting and no explanation. Now, if you look at the 2004, we don't use the 2004 year pretty much for this analysis or this statement. We're using 2003 because in 2004, there were some big deposits Mm -hmm. and withdrawals, but they're explained. So for example, there was, um, let's see, he he borrowed $10,000 from his business partner in 2004. So you would have seen $10,000 going in. Um, you would have also seen that he, he liquidated a stock. So he sold one of his stocks and it turns out it was a huge number, like $80,000 wow. or something. Yeah, it must've been a stock for a while. I know mm-hmm. he did trading and whatnot. Um, he also sells his mother's real estate, uh, or I'm sorry, her, uh, her estate in general, uh, if you remember his mother mm-hmm. passed. So there, there are these big withdrawals and deposits in 2004, but they are- I'm
2: sorry, when did explained. he die again? It was at 2004. I,
0: yes. Okay. I so thought it, so. was, I sure. um, it was April or May, right at the beginning of 2004. His mother had only passed, I think, maybe a year before mm-hmm. him. So he settles that estate. So in 2004, there are, you know, there's big transactions, but you can explain them. In 2003, though, there is also a number of, of these huge transactions that are not explained. So the interesting thing is if you actually look at his records, and there's a lot to look through, by the mm-hmm. way, I, we're talking about like pages and pages and transcripts, but Okay, in 2003, the income from um, salaries
2: combined was 88000 But look at the, if you look at his net, their net deposits. But the income from salary should be much higher though, based on what their salaries were.
3: Well,
0: I remember Bill also might've been, he might've changed jobs. I'm not really oh, sure gotcha. why that was. Okay, Income from salaries is 88000 there. Mm-hmm. The net deposits, $216,000. Uh, 216000 for net deposits. That's a lot. Net deposits minus income from salaries one hundred and twenty seven thousand dollars. Net withdrawals one hundred and seventy nine thousand. That means in that year they withdrew that amount of money. Yeah. Wow. So factoring in the consulting pay of thirty three thousand dollars, which was not in the bank record, mm-hmm. we're looking at about ninety five thousand dollars of money that's unaccounted for. Wow. Uh, to, to me, this is this is definitely a red flag. Mm-hmm. What is this money? Where is mm-hmm. it coming from? No idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is when again. You call in the forensic accountant. Someone yeah. can explain what's going on here. And the defense didn't look at this at all. Not real. No, no. They, they did. I mean, they, maybe they looked at it behind the scenes. Maybe yeah. it was one of those times where I don't... I actually, though, according to Melanie, I don't think they ever had any type of real accounting. So you have... Okay, so you've got these big transactions. Um, you also... I mean, there are things that you can say about uh, Bill's gambling records. So there are records, you know, the casinos keep records. Um, so his records for, let's say, June 2nd, 2003 through March 13th, 2004 show a cash transaction record total of $77,450. So it's called a CTR, and this is required for currency transactions of $10,000 or more that occur within a 24-hour period. Um, so there was CTR on five different days during this time frame, and there was a record of play on 11 other days. So he actually, when I looked at the total, I think it was he played on 18 or 19 days in 2003. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a lot, a little. I, I don't mean, know.
2: Yeah, it's, it, it's a lot for me because I don't gamble. I don't gamble at all. But it might be a little for someone who has a gambling yeah. problem. That's what I'm saying.
0: I don't know that we can say, is this a gambling problem? Mm -hmm. I don't think we can say it. I'm not really sure. It also clusters around some, a couple of days. So it looks like there are Mm. a couple of days where he maybe was on vacation. But I will say this, I did look, there were definitely separate incidents where it's just a day. It's just Mm -hmm. a day. And um, some of those times where I looked at, when you cross-reference them with his work records, he was supposed to be at work on some of those days. Oh, interesting. So he was gambling when he should have, when he was technically reporting that. No, he was at work. Um, So a large amount of money, let's say 51,000 was reported for October 16th to 18th, 2003, when Bill and Melanie were on a trip to Atlantic City with John and Sue Rice. This is, I mean, this is big. This is all play money though. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that we're able to parse out what is, what are his winnings and what is he losing? Because Mm -hmm. it's just the transaction record. But look at this. There were no report of gambling winnings or losses on the 2003 tax return. He's not reporting any of this. No, if anything, it's tax fraud, Right. You're supposed to report your winnings for sure. But yeah. it might be something even more ominous. What you have at the end here is we can't draw any strong conclusions. I mean, you need, again, a forensic accountant, but given the amount of money that's reported by the casino, um, there's large amounts of money, unexplained cash going into and out of the banking account. It does beg the question, was there something going on that we just don't know about?
2: Did you talk to Melanie about this? Like what? I did, yeah. Was Bill the one in charge of finances? Yes. So she didn't really even know what was going on. She didn't. She She said at times that she did see money going in and out, and she didn't really know what it was for. Um, but she didn't care. I mean, I guess, they, you know what? They're not strapped for cash. Only people, I think, who are struggling really are paying close attention. I could be wrong, but it seems that I way. I think they were strapped for cash, though.
0: I mean, I, not strapped, but I think, remember, when they went to buy the house, they had to get a, They had to get more loans. They they mm. declared bankruptcy in 2000. Which is
2: crazy, because they make a nice
0: living. But I think she also knew that Bill was um, he gambled, mm-hmm. so maybe she's just not alarmed by this. Maybe she she's not checking. I, I don't know. I don't know who does the the primary. Wouldn't you be pissed though?
2: I mean, I I would I would oh, at, at the livid. very least I'd want my own account. Like, don't touch my money. I'd be living. You want to gamble away your money? Fine.
0: Well, listen, doesn't that also support what she said? Like, yeah, I was, you know, I wasn't stoked about getting a new house, but at least I was tying up cash. Like it's money yeah, you couldn't that's spend. that's true.
2: No, that's, that's very true.
0: So uh, also on the, this is the int- another interesting thing. On the 2003 tax return, there was a casualty and theft worksheet, which showed the vandalism of the Nissan Maxima. This is the stolen headlights. Mm. January 20th, March 29th, July 10th, October 2nd, and ended- December 12th.
2: How many police reports um, validate those dates? Because you said there were some. Yeah, right? there definitely okay. was. Uh, Melanie remembered him filing. It's also possible that he's lying to write off more loss, right? Like It's possible it wasn't that many times. I imagine that he had to have some police
0: reports. Uh, I know that he had some. I just don't know how many. Is it possible that this is not true? Yeah, but... Uh, Going back to this questionable headlight, Mm -hmm. 2000, this is just 2003. Yeah. So that's one, two, three, four, five. Those are five dates. Five times the headlights are stolen.
2: It doesn't make any sense. In one year? I mean, why not maybe park your car somewhere different? (laughs) Right? You know what I mean? Like, it's sort of, what do they say? Like, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me Or whatever they say, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, whatever. Like, I don't know. It might relate to when I was a federal probation officer, I had this guy who was arrested for drugs.
0: And I looked through his rap sheet, and he had like 50 arrests, and he always got arrested on like the same corner. Like, it would be like 216th and like White Plains Road or something, whatever the. And corner it was, was always the same. And so I asked him, like, dude, you got, what? Was, why didn't you move corners? He's like, it was just a convenient corner. Oh my God. <laughs> like, that's amazing.
2: You gotta, you know, I, I was like, okay. I I thought it was, you know. So. And also, I know we talked about this, but they didn't like, why didn't he park in like his job's parking lot? Melanie said she thought one time they got stolen from her house, but she couldn't be sure.
0: I'm like, well, once in front of the house and then all the other times at work. It doesn't make any sense. So that might've been a mistake. So, you know, again, we just did a brief rundown. This is looking at some bank accounts, some tax returns. Is this enough to draw conclusions? No, but it's enough to raise up the flag, right? Reasonable doubt once again, right? Reasonable doubt. And a forensic accountant would have been great here. If you're going to start off in your opening, like you said, saying like, you know, there's gambling, there's money issues, hold us to our promises, at least have an accountant come in and, and take a look. And say something about it. If you don't have that in your plan, yeah. it's a big promise to make and not deliver on.
2: It's a letdown. Especially for seasoned attorneys. They should know better. Your opening statements are really important. I'm sorry. In the closing, did they talk about the gambling again? Do you know? If not, I'm curious. I we'll think take
0: they, a look. I, it's a brief mention. Yeah. It's not a... <laughs> they didn't show anything. Yeah. They didn't have the... There was no smoking gun. All right. So there's no forensic accountant. Now, does Melanie testify or does she not? This is a big question when it comes to um, criminal trials. And Melanie said that she was prepped. They had told her from day one, you are going to testify. You're going to clarify. You're going to bring a lot of these issues together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was a question I had for Melanie along, you know, when I'd say, well, were you worried about this mistake? Were you worried about something they did? Um, And she said, well, I was, but I wasn't so worried because I thought I would pull it all together. I'd be able to explain everything in my testimony. So she always intended to. And um, at some point, they kind of let her know that, yeah, we're not going to need you to testify.
1: They had planned the entire time and they prepped me from the beginning. You will be taking the stand. So get your head right and be advised because the prosecutor is fierce absolutely fierce, and it would have been nothing nice. I think I would have held my own. I think I would have held my own. And it's funny because she's a very animated, sort of passionate person, and I kind of liken it to how I used to deal with my husband sometimes. The louder he got, the quieter I got. Now, there's only so much of that you could do, and again, it's inherently nerve-wracking. This is your life. You are on trial for your life. Everybody's looking at you. Everybody's in your mouth. Everybody's writing about what you're wearing, how your hair looks you know, all of this other stuff, whereas if it could just be me, her, the lawyers, and the jury in a room somewhere, it would make a big difference. During the state's case, cross-examinations went great. I started to lose faith when our case, when we switched over to our side, and when he approached me about not testifying. They basically presented it as we were so good. You know, me getting up there could only jeopardize us. And again, I've never done this before. Yeah, he said, because I spent so much more time on this than I ever budgeted for, and, you know, doing the second indictment and all of this, like I have to get back. And if we put you on the stand, it's gonna take two weeks, easily. And we only we can only stand to lose. I was disappointed and they make you stand up and say, Are you sure this is your decision and not that of your attorney? Well yes it's my decision and I'm going on the advice of my attorney. You just say yes and you you know, you sit down. You know, and I'm not gonna lie, of course I was I was nervous and you know, the fact that you're on live T V every day while this is going on. It, of course, and, and the prosecutor, she was no joke. It would have been absolutely nerve-wracking, and she had what I felt was a very personal dislike um, of me. So what it would have become is a showdown. It would have been Melanie versus Patty. To be honest with you, that would have taken up a ton of time and that would have, would it have advanced the ball for us? I don't see how it wouldn't. Could it have hurt us? I could see where it could if my story had evolved, if my story had changed. But my story, with the exception of little details here and there, I mean, it's not rehearsed, obviously. That would also speak to it being untrue. But for the most part, I'm not saying anything I have been saying all along. And I'm not saying anything that I wasn't saying on a test before I did my phone for
2: So I'm not surprised that they didn't have her testify because I mean, all you know, what what would you say? Eight times out of ten? Oh, nine out of ten you probably. You think nine out of ten? Yeah, Most defense attorneys don't put their witnesses yeah, on this. And for uh, good reason. Because innocent in or not, it, they usually get torn apart. Right? Well, what happens, I think
0: there's two issues. Uh, well, there's a, a few. The first one is if you are caught in any lie mm-hmm. whatsoever even if it does not relate to the crime mm-hmm. you know you lied once about the you know liking yeah. someone's hair <laughs> Yeah, your credibility is then damaged mm-hmm. and sometimes and they'll capitalize on that they will capitalize that well didn't you lie once before yeah. isn't it true that you um, you know say things when they're convenient for you Um, isn't it true that you know if they I think they were concerned probably as well about them delving into her affair yeah. you know and it would go to her issues of honesty yeah. and dishonesty uh, I I think they were definitely afraid that Melanie might not be able to hold her own. How mm-hmm. would she come across? Would she? Would she cry? Would she get defensive? Would she? She would have gotten defensive. I think. What would be her actual yeah. reaction? She says she get quieter. Well, will it? Would it come off to the jury then as her being again sympathetic, yeah. unsympathetic? Yeah, um, there are any number of reasons why. So, people do you think she should
2: have testified?
0: So, with all of that being said, and after everything I know, I do think she should have testified.
2: You think yes. it could have helped her? I
0: think that it I don't think it would have hurt her. I mm-hmm. mean, well, we have the benefit of hindsight now, yeah, right? That's true. She was convicted. So, you know, she it couldn't have it couldn't have hurt, yeah. like knowing what I know now. Um, I think that Melanie would have made a strong witness. I mm-hmm. think it's always a risk um, I think one of the things she had going for her, exactly what she just said um, when we were just listening to her before, is she never changed her story. Mm-hmm. I can't find—I've asked but her But she story. did lie. She did call Easy yep. Pass to get yep. a charge. Like,
2: there are and, a lot of
0: things they could get her so, with. And they would. They would mm-hmm. say, well, didn't you actually lie about— I mm-hmm. think she could have explained some of the things that— um, I think she could have explained some of the things that were questionable. And look, no matter what, if they do well or not, every jury wants to hear from them. You know, Mm -hmm. every jury wants to wants to hear their story.
2: Right. And I think um, jury members assume that if someone is not testifying, they have something to hide. That's ex- that's exactly Unfortunately, right. Unfortunately, though, because that's not the case. No,
0: it's not the case. We know that. We know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some juries know that now, probably. But so, I mean, there are examples like, uh, do you remember the Jodi Arias case? Yes. She, How could I forget? She testified for, I think she was up for 18 days. Oh, wow. And there was all this analysis afterwards. Did she hurt herself? Did she help herself? Mm-hmm. And it went both ways. I, I When I watched it personally, I thought she hurt herself. How come? Uh, because she didn't seem, she seemed very clearly like she was lying at certain points. Yeah. She seemed really narcissistic at other points. So I think she hurt herself. But then there's other cases like, um, oh, the preacher's wife, Mary Winkler. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember her, but she killed her husband and she got up and she testified and she testified that he was abusive Mm -hmm. and there were other things. And she wound up, you know, convicted, but with a very like manslaughter and a very light sentence. And you think it's because of her testimony? I thought her testimony probably helped her in that case. Because it displayed her as a victim? It seemed genuine. Mm -hmm. She seemed genuine, you know? So I think there's... I, uh, the prevailing thought, I guess, from her attorneys at the time was, we did a good job. We've poked
2: the holes that we need to poke. All we need to do is reasonable doubt. Well, as Melanie said, though, Joe also didn't want the trial to continue on.
0: So that part I don't like. I don't. And again, like that that's he, just her opinion, though. Or that's no. hearsay. Is that not <laughs> it's hearsay? Right? So- but he actually said to her, according, again, yeah. it's hearsay. So yeah. according to Melanie, he said, you know, it would take too long. I have other things. And, you know, he's out of pocket now. He's out of time. I mean, he does have his own... He has... You're, we'll, we'll come to find out some of the things that he had going on in mm-hmm. his own
2: life then, but... But at the end of the day, he wants to win. So if he truly believed that it could help her... He wants to win. Then he would have taken the hit and let her testify. So I do believe he did probably think it was not going to help <gasps> the case. Okay. fair And fair
0: enough. Like we said, uh, most defense attorneys are not going to want to put the clients up. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. And And we don't know what happened. During the course of this trial facts might have been revealed that he didn't know that he goes oh boy that might not make her yep. look so good mm-hmm. regardless melanie was disappointed and i think melanie felt like she was losing some you know some lo- she was losing faith in joe mm-hmm. She's kind of disheartened. Um, she, she wanted to testify. She thought it was the thing that she should have done. So she definitely loses faith in him. But, you know, he's able to remind her again, we've poked some serious holes here, okay? Um, if you look at the science or you look at some of the facts here, uh, we have lab reports as well. But one of the things was um, that they had, you know, they had untested DNA, So they've collected, yeah, they've collected from Bill's car. um, They collected from Melanie's car. They collected from the apartment. They also obviously are collecting the DNA from the suitcases, Mm -hmm. from the trash bags. And they have, there's a number of items that they didn't test. Why? Why?
2: I don't know. So when you say they, you mean the prosecution? Yeah. The forensic science says that it didn't test. But what kind of items are we talking? All right.
0: Hold on one second. So let me Okay. Get, so I wasn't able to get my hands on this at first, but then we did.
2: So... The evidence is still sitting somewhere in a, a storage facility or what? Yes. All right. I believe I believe okay. it is. Yes. So um, things that were not tested then could still be tested?
0: Yeah. Melanie's asked to have things tested. Okay. But I... You know, she hasn't prevailed upon yeah. some of that. They did test. So what they're doing is they're testing hairs, right? Yeah. So there's a lot, there was a lot of hair found in the garbage bags and in the suitcases. Okay. Or uh, there's a, well, there's two parts of that. There's animal hair found. What kind of animal? Um, they think it was dog
2: hair. How do they think?
0: I'll get to okay. that. And then there's also actual hairs. So they found one hair that they were able to conclusively say belonged to Melanie okay. in the suitcase. That makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't there be her hair in her suitcase? That was what <laughs> she said. But then as I'm looking through the lab report, she had told me this, but there's other hair. You mean hair that doesn't match Melanie it doesn't nor match
2: Bill? Doesn't match Melanie or Bill. It doesn't match Melanie or Bill or Melanie's parents. Or Melanie's kids, I'm assuming. Because they, they, you got to look at everyone who lives in the house, I would imagine. I don't know if they tested it against the children. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I really because hair is only done by comparing, correct? Like you do hair comparison, right? So they were comparing the hairs, okay. right? Yeah, you have to do it. So what happens is
0: they tested hairs against they tested these hairs uh-huh. against Melanie and her parents, and then this to me doesn't make sense. And this is something I would ask the prosecution about. So, for instance, let me give you an example. They find a hair, two inch long, light brown head hair with root. Right next to it, they write. N-E-V, not of evidentiary value. But root would have DNA. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That makes no sense. They wrote, so, it, so it's not Melanie's hair, clearly. And it's not, they
2: tested her parents, I think, too. Um, you also know hair comparison is considered junk signs, though. I guess I do. But the I DNA... know a little bit about it. So hair comparison itself is considered junk signs, but the root would have DNA. So if you were to just cut a piece of your hair and you don't get the root, yeah. it's pretty much... Right. Um there's really no value to it. Um but, right, but this one has the root. That's what I'm saying. If you have the root, that's the DNA. And they're saying it's not of
0: evidentiary value. So Melanie's question was, well why not? Because it didn't match me. Yeah, pretty much. They also had um they also had a lot of animal hair. So they had, I I think this was what they would say, dog hair. Linda talks about this, actually.
1: How about the dog hair that was found in the bags with his body? Brown and white dog hair in with the body. Where did it come from? I went to the grand jury and I was pounded on that question. Do you have a dog at the time? No, we didn't have a dog. Does Melanie have a dog? No. When did Melanie, well, she did. When did the dog die? When did your dog die? How do you know when your dog died? What kind of a dog did Melanie have? And every lawyer you mentioned it to, well, that's easily transferable. But you have to have a dog. Mm-hmm. Where did it come from? Where was this body packaged. When they found out that we didn't have animals, they that was dropped.
2: How convenient, right? Like if they had animals, forget about it. They would have been like, oh, oh, forget it. And, and so
0: I'm looking at the lab reports and I see different, like several different animal hairs, animal brown hair, animal hair, white, animal hair, light brown, animal hair, white and brown. I see at least 15, I think, accounts of animal hairs that Independent they Independent found- of each other.
2: Yes. Oh well. Well, no. can they tell? Yeah, what do you mean? Uh, I mean, like, can well, you tell if it comes from a different animal? I mean, nowadays, nowadays, science could easily tell probably what kind of dog it came from. They could tell like the genealogy of, you know, this uh, came from this sort of breed, right? They can,
0: at the very least, Amy. They can tell that there was a there's there's animal hair all over. There's a dog. They hammered
2: Linda, right? They asked her a hundred well, times. Well, when about- did Melanie's dog die? Could it have been much earlier? But they also got the suitcases somewhat recently, or no? Or- the hairs were found in the bags oh in the bed not the not the suitcase this is why that, that was such a major thing so it's almost as if the hairs were on his body probably on his or, body or somewhere where someone was putting them in the body. They must have had a pretty, a dog that shed a lot if there's that many found. Well,
0: not really if you think about it. I mean, our dog no. walks and 15 hairs fall off yeah. for like one, okay. one stride. I don't have a dog, so I don't know. Okay. So there's all these animal hairs, which I think are extremely questionable. And I went through- Did they
2: check his car for animal hairs? They checked his car for everything. And I don't know that any okay. animal hair came from his car. I guess car. maybe it would have come up if it had. Yeah. And I'm assuming they checked her car because they would have loved to be like, oh, the oh animal, yeah, I'm they sure checked they her, her hair. They, they checked her car for sure. And there were different
0: hairs, by the way. There was animal hair. There's also a couple, like I read you, the light brown mm-hmm. hair. There was also, and I saw it in the lab report, there was an untested pubic hair. What? what? In Bill's underwear. So I'm assuming they know it's not his. Well, yeah, they fa- they actually found, I saw that they found a pubic hair that was tested and was his, and then they found the one that wasn't. So someone
2: else's pubic hair was in his underwear? Yes. I mean, it is possible. It's just from like, um, he had like a sexual encounter and yes. it got stuck in his pews and it transferred, out, you know. That's a great secret. <laughs> <summary. laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, but still, why would they, I would want to talk to a Harris uh, or a scientist who'd be able to talk about this a little more. Is it not hers? Did they conclude it's not Melanie's? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so so they, uh, they, they
0: only found from what I, I reviewed the reports and from what I could see, they only found one hair in the suitcase that matched Melanie's. Okay, so they checked the pubic hair, they checked that it wasn't
2: his or hers. I'm going to say, I don't know how they did that, but yes. Well, comparison, they probably, you could ask Melanie, but I know sometimes defendants, they'll pluck a pubic hair. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know?
0: This is one of the arguments I think that, you know, Joe is saying to Melanie, like, we've, we, we're have we punching a lot of holes here, right? So we have untested DNA that's not yours. Um, we have the absence of DNA and blood in the apartment. I think that was a strong yep. point. I think that was a strong point for them. And I think they knew that was a strong point for them. they I think, you know, her team, they, they kind of thought that explanation... Um, from Patty was somewhat, you know, ludicrous. Like, I don't think they believed that anyone was going to believe that she did this, yeah. this crime, you know, this yeah. awful crime in her apartment and they didn't
2: found, yeah, find Yeah, I anything. definitely, I think I mentioned this before. I'm not going to reveal yet if what I think about her guilt or innocence, but I will say that there is no way that that prosecution proved their timeline slash story. Yeah. He was not killed in that apartment. Well, they would le- later on
0: say, I mean, uh, you probably know this already, but they don't have to prove a crime scene. They don't, I know. But in, they don't have to, but in some instances, you really want them to, to make, it, to make it fit with, or, you know, to understand how something happened. And if it happened, you do want a crime scene for some, not all crimes. Their story doesn't,
2: it doesn't make sense on several so accounts. So there's
0: absence of DNA. Um, There's these dog hairs. There's no fiber matches to the bullet. Um, If you recall there, one of the bullets was found. It had some fibers on it. And mm-hmm. so they took all of Melanie's they took pillows, they Mm -hmm. took lots of things and they couldn't make a match. There was a weight set or part of a weight set, a couple that Mm -hmm. were found um, in the suitcases. If you remember, there was like one had, I think they put five pound weights. Uh And so um, the prosecution attempted to match that to a weight set that Bill had. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was like the same, maybe even the same manufacturer, but it wasn't the same weight set. So there wasn't a match there. They weren't able to establish that. were um, they had no proof of Melanie buying weights or, you know, you said they combed through. Yeah, no, no, they couldn't match anything there. So that was also, you know, again, they have no match there. Um, They have no print matches. So fingerprints, Um, they had a latent print on one of the garbage bags, but it wasn't a match to Melanie or anyone in her family. And actually, this is really interesting. This was an interesting point. There was a detective, because we had several detectives who were working different angles of this case. But, on the prosecution side. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a detective working on the pro- prosecution side, and he testified about this. And it, it was actually specifically to this issue, okay? Um, this was Detective Machoka, and he was asked a total of six times by attorney, de- their defense attorney, Steve Torano, if a latent palm print was found on one of the bags that was recovered with the remains of William McGuire. And each time he answered yes. Mm-hmm. Immediately following this testimony, there's a break. Um, and then one of the prosecutors came back, a co-counsel, and I don't know how, I think it's ramenschein And he asked uh, Makocha, he gets him back on the stands or maybe he was still on the stands and he asks him if he had been mistaken about which bag the palm print was on and that wasn't the latent palm print found on a bag that was recovered from Bill's trunk of his car and not from one of the suitcases. And to this question, Machoka said, oh yes, you know, I, I must have been mistaken. It's weird. But he, six times before, Six times. He mm. said it was a palm print on uh, the bag from the suitcase. And there's two states exhibits. There's two reports. So state exhibit 493. It is an investigation report dated December 16th, 2004. It was authored by Donald Makocha stating that um, John Gorkowski called to advise him that a partial latent print was obtained from a plastic bag inside one of the suitcases. Okay. So he puts that down. Uh, a second report dated June 16th, 2005, also authored by Donald Makocha stating that John Garkowski advised him that Melanie McGuire's palm print did not match the latent obtained from a plastic bag found in one of the suitcases that contained Bill mm-hmm. McGuire's remains. So he's got it twice in a report. He was saying that, um, you know, someone advised him that they found mm-hmm. this and it wasn't a match. He says six times on the stand um, that you know it, it was, and then he suddenly says, "I was mistaken
2: and it must I must have thought it was on another bag." But why would the prosecution? Be worried, because clearly the prosecution was like, oh, no, this isn't good. But the prosecution claimed she had an accomplice. So the the prosecution could have just argued, yeah, it wasn't Melanie's print. She had an accomplice. It was theirs. Yeah, they could have. I'm not sure if this is even... And then they could have tested it against Melanie's father and been like, oh, he wasn't there either.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah, it irks me a little bit. It bothers me this a, a, it's slimy a little bit again.
2: You know, it just seems
0: like there feels wrong, and it feels like I mean, yeah, you could say it was a compost, but it feels like again the big point or one of the big points here: there's a handprint, there's a latent print on a garbage bag inside the suitcase. So basically, on the bags, whoever you know put Bill in those bags, there's a print, and it's
2: not Melanie's. And the prosecution doesn't need the jury to know that because it doesn't fit with their story. I mean, it doesn't, right? Like I said, unless it was the accomplice. But
0: so I guess you know what's the takeaway from this? You know, we're talking about the DNA, we're talking about the fiber matches the apartment. The takeaway here is that I think the you know Joe and the team felt that the forensics, you know, they were weak. There was there was a lack of all this trace evidence.
1: It's so grisly as to pretty much negate the possibility that anybody could do this without leaving forensic evidence behind. Virginia Beach, when they were up here investigated, they were able to contact the people who had been involved uh, with the move. Uh, One of my friend's cousins was present and was there, and he ended up taking one or two of our couches, uh, some of the bags of Bill's clothing, because, you know, at this point, bear in mind, we've not been notified. We're packing up, we're moving, and I'm not aware he's dead. I'm, I'm home. I'm on the couch. I'm not at this move. So I think the idea with the clothing at that point, that had already been packed up. You know, it's often, it's been made a lot out of that. oh, she just you know, got rid of his clothes like two days after she found out, you know, that he was dead. Well, they, they were they were all in bags already because in my mind, again, I'm getting divorced and I'm moving. The detectives were able to um, visit this young man uh, named Justin, and they were able to obtain from Justin clothing, the black trash bags that the clothing was in. That's how they did some of their comparisons. In fact, they also got the couch, the throw pillows. They compared all the fibers they could essentially get their hands on. Apparently, there was some concern one of the bullets had a wad of of white fiber around it, which they thought ultimately represented the fact that it was shot through a They they did all of these comparisons and found nothing. And this gentleman as well was able to tell them that he himself had seen the mattress. The mattress was pristine white, that the mattress had gone to the dump. And even though there's no formal report of it, I'm reasonably certain that they went and saw that mattress because it was like a couple days later. I'm pretty sure they could have gotten to that dump and who knows, but at the very least you can see it's not soaked in blood.
0: Okay. So she's just establishing what we just discussed, Mm -hmm. right? That they, they didn't find anything. There's nothing in the, you know, there's nothing in the apartment. There's no fibers that are matching. Uh, the, you know, everything's pristine. So They have a lack of or weak forensic evidence in this case. And I think that was, I think that that was something, you know, if we have to look at things that were working for them, um, as Melanie said, nothing really worked. She wound up where she did. But Mm -hmm. I'm going to say this is their strong point. They Mm -hmm. have no crime scene and they can't, they really can't establish what happened. There's no forensics here or very little forensics. Agreed? I agree. Okay, so let's move on. Um, So Melanie's losing faith, but um, one of the strong witnesses they had actually was a handwriting expert by the name of Carol Chaskey. She's a forensic linguistic specialist. She was brought in because there were two letters written to the prosecution. The prosecution contended that these letters were written by Melanie in an attempt to obstruct justice and throw them off of her trail. One letter, uh, they call it the mob letter, Mm -hmm. was a letter supposedly from the real killer. And I think that it had to be because it contained some factual accuracies about Bill's murder, which indicates that the person who wrote it either was a part of the crime or
2: knew who was. Um, Couldn't it be someone who was just close to the investigation? Or there were things that the public didn't know or there you know Well you
0: could say there were things that maybe it was leaked by the investigation, yeah. but there were things in the letter that was not known to the that were not known to the public. But so, known to obviously the detectives and the prosecution. Like yes. there were a
2: lot of people who knew this information. You don't know who tells who what. You know? No, you don't. No. I'm sorry. And when was this letter received during the trial or was it? Um... This
0: was before the trial, Trial, but it was uh, later. Uh, if you recall in the beginning, we discussed Melanie was indicted twice. Yeah. So this was the second indictment. So okay. it was a good time after Melanie was arrested. I mean, we're talking about probably a year or six months to a year or something mm-hmm. in that time frame. So before the trial but after way after the first indictment um so you, we have two anonymous letters one is called the mob letter and the second one is called the set her up list and both of these the prosecution contended came from melanie
1: In October of 2006, I'm indicted because a number of anonymous communications had been received. The attorney general, the press, there there were several different mailings. So we were preparing for that with a linguistics expert. So we ended up actually spending a good deal of money on linguistics. It was a lot. A lot of back and forth with a piece of anonymous communication as well that had um, some things in it that were attributed to basically have been from Cindy's house, a school calendar, things like this. And I think this was one of the ones that went solely and directly uh, to Patty's office. They found DNA and fingerprints on different forms of this communication that didn't match anybody. Again, when you put Dr. Kasky up there, this is the stuff that I was ultimately acquitted
0: of. So the letter that she's talking about, um, we've both seen it before. Uh, you know, purportedly, it's from a mobster explaining why Melanie McGuire could not have killed her husband. Um, it talks about Bill McGuire. They refer to him as Billy Mac. That there—that sounds like a mob name, <laughs> right? <us> actually, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's saying that he he was a gambler and that he had a big mouth and that, you know, they refer to her, the wife, the wife, a couple of times. You know, it doesn't paint him in a positive light. And it looks like it's trying to, you know, take focus off of Melanie. And then at the end, they conclude that there are some facts that, you know, should finally convince you. So again, the letter is kind of saying that Melanie didn't do have anything to do with it. And, you know, you should probably look at, you know, some of his other areas. And in the end, it says, uh, you know, that I'm taking the liberty of sending this to the media in case you want to close your eyes to this. Have you, has, As you've done in everything else in this case, I'm sending it to the wife's lawyer. Um, The way the articles read last year made it seem like his arms were cut off. Oh, does that say arms? Yeah. 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 No, sorry, the way the articles read last year made it seem like his arms were cut off. They weren't, which they were not. They weren't cut off at all. No, they arm? were. No, remember the torso was oh, intact. Oh, gotcha. The head, the arms, okay. everything were intact. He was wearing nothing but purple briefs that's when true? you found him. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, ever figure out where the weights came from. Now, do you believe me? I don't don't think the weights is, you know. But the purple briefs part is... And um, that wasn't made public? No, 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 that was not made public. Nothing I saw in any reports were. So, uh, you know... We've read through this. You've read through this letter before. I've read through this letter. It's like, written very well. The letter is written very. well. Are we well. going to be posting this on the website? Yes, we are. We're going to post this this mob letter on the yeah, website. I would love to hear other people's opinion. I think it's I mean, it says things like he loved to I, gamble, so loved to flash cash. Yeah. I'd see him at AC at some private games. The funny part is that he was a good, a pretty good player, but his ego wouldn't let him lose.
2: <laughs> I'm curious. Did you talk to Melanie about this? It says. Um, ask his wife about the steakhouse in North Jersey and about an unfortunate accident coming home from work there late one night. What yeah. he didn't tell her was he wasn't working. He had lost a bundle, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm wondering, obviously, we're going with- to... Think Melanie wrote this, right? But let's assume she didn't, right? Does she know the reference to these things? Have you spoken? Yeah, to- she
0: knows about that one. Uh, he wasn't working. He lost a bundle that night. I heard him talk about getting pulled over on top of that, and it was her fault. I laughed. You can't be serious, man. She takes that from you, that and more. Um, so uh she did know this incident actually because they did get into a huge fight over it. He called her one night, he got pulled over and um, he was yelling at her on the phone. And I don't know, maybe she was yelling back. I'm not sure the full extent of this fight, but it was, she was upset enough that she left the house in the middle of the night and went driving around and mm-hmm. called her mother, who was like, what are you doing? Go yeah. home. You know, her mom Her mom yeah. said that later she didn't know what was going on, but that was, an, it's, it's also, but also there's
2: no way to substantiate that. There is something interesting though. It talks about how, you know, in the letter it says he talked about Virginia and how that was where he was going once he made his money here and how his wife hated it. So he did get angry at Melanie because he wanted to live in Virginia, but she didn't, correct? Yes. So it makes hearsay, sense. But yes. Like, yes. <laughs> so it makes sense that if he wanted to get away and leave the wife and kids, he's going to go to Virginia. And that's where his body was found. I mean... But his car was found in Atlantic City. <sighs> yeah, that's true. <your, laughs> damn it. Okay, I forgot about I know, that. I know, you, I know. I understand,
0: you're right, but the car is in Atlantic City. Mm. Which... Unless he had
2: like an accomplice that he was going with. So he's oh, yeah. got an accomplice Maybe. now. Maybe. I don't know. My impression of this letter is that
0: it looks like it was very, what Amy just said, very well written. I also thought, to me, it reads like a woman trying to write like a
2: man. How come? Somewhere in
0: particular? There were, there were a lot of different places, actually, where I thought, it, I thought it sounded like how someone would think a man would talk, but it wasn't. I'd have to look back and reference a couple oh, of them. Um, but... I thought he was either gay or
2: sexually bent. He said his wife was so stupid. Hold on. Um, when she asked him why he got pissed and told her even that couldn't help him get it up for her. Nice guy. Billy Mac. I mean. No, you're not seeing it. Um, I do think that it's talking a lot about, you know, it's trying too hard to defend Melanie. Like, why does this person care so much? Right. You know, it says. Did it dawn on you that Miss McGuire in her quote unquote selfish plot to kill her husband didn't bother to wait for him to actually purchase the insurance? Oh, and she's got the boyfriend with the money. She didn't need it. Why would anyone who would pass on two mil money or not? The two mil, that's sort of like a man thing to say, I think. If she coaxed that boyfriend away from his happy home, how much do you think it would leave for her after he paid out his old his old lady?
0: So you the, see the old lady references and yeah, Billy but Mack.
2: I, I just feel like, why would somebody care so much about trying to convince someone that Melanie didn't do it? Yeah. I, the whole letter is pretty much like defending Melanie.
0: It is. And there is something in the letter at some point that says like, why do I care? I don't really, just like she's getting a raw deal. I don't really care. I just figured I'd, you know, I'd hate to see this woman go to jail and lose her children because,
2: you know, of... But this person's not claiming, let's say this isn't Melanie. This person is not claiming they did it. They just claim they know who did it.
0: Correct. It's not hurting me in any way. And I've got nothing... F- for the wife or against her. I read about those kids. This father, they're better off without, but they don't need a ma on death row. So now it's up to you to figure it out. She can't help you much. But did you ever even ask her? I know you think this is a hoax. Well, allow me to part with some facts that should finally convince you otherwise. I I
2: mean, besides the underwear thing, none of the other quote unquote facts are that crazy. Um, I don't think any of the facts are that crazy either. And, and the underwear, think of how many people are involved in the investigation from detectives to whoever. Like this could just be someone who just wants to, let's say it wasn't Melanie. It could just be someone who just wants to like, I don't know, fuck with the case.
0: It could be anyone. Well, I mean, listen, in a minute I'm going to get to what the what the experts are going to say about it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, this isn't up to me and you, but yeah. it, to me, again, it just read like for some reason, a woman who was trying to write like she thought a man would talk. Yeah. Like, like a thug kind of guy, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's the first piece of um, anonymous communication, they call it. The second piece is a list that's called the set her up list. And it was supposedly sent by someone who worked with Bill's sister, Cindy. And it went to, it was sent to the prosecutor anonymously implying that Cindy actually wrote this list. Hmm. So it was something, something to the effect of like, I found this. You know, I work with Cindy and I found this, you know, Mm -hmm. she wrote this list and it's a handwritten note and it's really like two pages and it looks like things, it says, set her up. So it says, um, all right, let's start. Set her up. Deny that we knew about the firearm or that he made her get one. Deny that he used to move her car when they fought sometimes. Because remember, she said that was something that Mm -hmm. he did. Call prosecutors, call prosecutors and, and mafia allegations to implicate her family. Um... Have kids say they saw her do it or dispose of his body. Oh, come on. Uh, final stages mm-hmm. termination of parental rights, public statement against prosecutor, estate for boys, taunt her with not seeing kids, and we are their parents now.
2: What? Stupid.
0: So that's I, handwritten
2: and the other one's typed. Yeah. This is the handwritten and the other one's typed. I think. Oh, I'm sorry. So the person sending that claim that they found that it was Cindy's and they found it? Yeah, like something Cindy wrote and discarded. Oh, so like Cindy. So this person is claiming Cindy set up Melanie. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard.
0: I think so, too. But here's the question. The prosecutor saying, well, clearly this is Melanie because who else would do this? Yeah. Right. Because that makes no sense. Well, did they check the handwriting? So, they so okay. So, um, before we get to the handwriting, the defense tried to elicit from Cindy on the stand that she had prepared a list like this one before when she and Bill got into an argument with their sister, Nancy. Mm-hmm. But I guess Bill and Cindy were a little bit upset when their mother passed away and they wanted to sell her estate because Nancy was holding up the sale in mm-hmm. some ways. Maybe she had questions or I don't know. She They said that she was complicating the sale mm-hmm. of their mother's estate. So, they wrote um, kind of a mean-spirited list and it was like called Ways to Taunt Nancy. Mm. And I'm actually not going to get into the particulars um, of the list on, I just, actually, I don't... How did they
2: even find out about that?
0: Melanie knew about it? Yeah, Melanie knew about it. Um, And Melanie, I think Melanie had it. Okay. Um, so again, I'm not going to get too much into the particulars. I don't want to invade their privacy that much because um, there were some mean-spirited things in there and Cindy admitted to it on the stand mm-hmm. and said, okay, uh, we wrote this one time over a glass of wine. We were joking. It was never meant for public consumption. Yeah. Um, we were never actually going to do anything to Nancy. Mm-hmm. Like we were never going to hurt Nancy, right? But Nancy provided an interview, her initial interviews with the detectives where she seems to think that It's possible that Cindy might do something harmful to her. Nancy said she recalled fighting with Cindy over Cindy's kids. Nancy recalled one time at the Bronx Zoo, Cindy wouldn't allow the kids to have anything to drink because that would require them to have to go to the bathroom in public. She also recalled Cindy threw her out of the house in the middle of the night over a minor disagreement. Nancy said Cindy had violent tendencies and said one time Cindy placed a pillow over her face. Nancy said she didn't find it very funny. How is any of this relevant? Well, it is and it's not, right? Cindy said we never would have done anything to Nancy. Nancy says, well, and this might it look, she might have given this interview on a bad day, but this yeah. was a, a year after Bill was um, murdered and she said Cindy had violent tendencies. Melanie's, saying, Melanie's camp is saying that this letter came from someone who it was it was Cindy that wrote it. And what doesn't it make sense that Cindy wrote it when she's written a similar letter before and she's a violent person.
2: Yeah. Ah, now they're trying to. I mean, whose handwriting is it, Melanie or Sydney
0: or Cindy? it's handwritten? It is handwritten. So we're going to get to that in a second. Okay, but I sorry, th- I I'm think, dying to know. Yeah, it. I think the point is though. You're asking what's the relevance. I yeah. think what they're trying to establish is that maybe you know Cindy, who you know who whose sister says she's afraid of her, and who's written a list that was very mean spirited also wrote this list and also has some violent tendencies and maybe had something to do with this crime. What? Some way, you know. Who got Bill's money when he died? Did Cindy get it? Did... No. And there was no money. There mean, was? Like, there wasn't real money. There was a small insurance. I don't remember how much, but it was a nominal amount. It was a okay, small so amount. so it's
2: not like anyone... It doesn't feel like there's a financial motivation. As far as someone getting his inheritance. I don't think there was much. So where'd the mother's inheritance go? It was split three-way between the kids? It was split three ways. And I think they each got like $30,000. Oh, so it wasn't enough to like I f- mean, kill I mean, not enough I think over. that we're yeah. killing
0: over. I know people kill each other for less, but I don't think so. Not okay. in New Jersey and with the, you know, the, yeah. the, the middle income salaries yeah. or higher that they're, you know, making. Um, interestingly enough, though, I have to say, and this report, again, so this report I'm reading from, I didn't just make up that that line. Yeah. Um, this was a, a report with one of the investigators, actually with mm-hmm. Um. And during this time, Nancy said something else. And this was a year after.
2: Nancy said
0: she always believed that it was either Melanie or Cindy who killed her brother.
2: Nancy says that?
0: That's correct.
2: Did anyone ask her why would you think that? <laughs> Melanie. I, or does Melanie have any? Yes, path? Melanie
0: said this. All right, let me read this. Let me go back and read this. Okay, Nancy said she always believed that it was either Melanie or Cindy who killed McGuire. She said Cindy sold her house and was having it demolished. She also said Cindy had a temper. Nancy said Cindy likes to be in complete control of everything and said Cindy wants to write down your entire life. Nancy said Cindy would have been angry with McGuire at the time because he spent the extra $7,000 from the estate on the purchase of his new house. Nancy said the price of his new home was $515,000 and it only appraised for $500,000 and said McGuire cut a deal with the owner to split the difference. McGuire gave the guy an extra $7,000. Nancy recalled this because Cindy mentioned to her when they called to inform her that McGuire was dead. I don't know. I mean, it's $7,000. Listen, Melanie had said at one point that when she talked to Nancy, Mm -hmm. one of the first conversations after Bill... um, Passed away that she had with Nancy. Nancy said to her, "Well, it was either you or Cindy who did it." Mm. And Melanie says, "I think it's on recording." Melanie says, "Okay, Nance, I follow you with why you think maybe me. Yeah, but I'm dying to hear like what's with Cindy. Yeah, and I don't know what the explanation was other than you know maybe they had a disagreement or that you know they mm. they had a temper or could have their brother and sister though. Yeah. I mean they're
2: they're you know it would be a strong theory." if the mother's inheritance was tied up and like it, when Bill died, the next of kin was Cindy. There, If there was some sort of financial motivation, I could almost get behind that theory. Right, but there's not. Okay. So, I mean, she's saying, you know, but I mean, you're going to kill your brother
0: over $7,000. I really don't think so. No, that sounds... But uh, it's interesting nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes from a sister, someone who has inside, and, you know, yeah. you know what I thought was... Unless Nancy did it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I thought was really interesting too, okay? Did you, you heard what I said about um, one time Cindy put a pillow over her face and she didn't like it. Remember earlier, I read the report from Marcy, Bill's first wife, and mm-hmm. said he wasn't violent, but one time he put a pillow over yeah. her face. Do so you think it's just like a family? They, it's like a, I don't know. But that's weird. It wasn't like one time she pulled or yeah. you know, pushed. Like they both at separate times put a pillow over,
2: as reported by yeah. as as hearsay. I mean, so both, maybe that's what they were. They were brought up thinking like that's how you handle problems or something. Or you think there's some biological marker for that? <laughs> I don't know. No, But actually. I see what you're saying. It's just an interesting sort of It was something coincidence. odd. So yeah, I'm putting it out there. Okay, so let's get
0: back to this anonymous prosecution. Here's what happens. Um, the defense, I said, retained Carol Chaskey um, to rebut the prosecution state witness. The prosecution state witness was um, Jim Fitzgerald. Do you recognize that name? Nope. Okay. <laughs> well, he's a forensic linguistic expert. The only reason I asked if you know who this was because he's now the subject of oh, manhunt. Did you guys do okay. see manhunt on Netflix about gotcha. the Unabomb? Okay, so he was he's best known for his work on the Unabom case. Uh-huh. So he's an FBI profiler, and he, you know they brought him in. He's a forensic linguistic. Well, it's debated on whether or not he's a forensic linguistic expert. You know, Carol might say um, this expert might say yes, he might say no, yeah. but the, the court allowed him as a forensic linguistic. Okay, so expert. he's an expert then. So Jim Fitzgerald. Harold comes in, he's known for the, again, his work on the Unabomb case. And he testified that there were a number of similarities between Melanie's handwriting and the communication sent to the prosecutor.
2: So So you're not, obviously, we're not talking about the typed letter. You're talking about the handwritten list of how to frame Melanie or... Both. Oh, because he looked at the language you're saying. He looked at the handwriting and the language? Yes. Okay. The
0: defense calls Carol Chaskey. Again, Carol Chaskey um, is called in as a rebuttal witness. She has a PhD in linguistics. And she testified that Fitzgerald really could not make the conclusions he did based on the evidence he was given. Chaskey said that Fitzgerald talked about comma placement and other things she calls forensic stylistics. But she says that's different than forensic linguistics. Okay. So stylistic, you know, commas... um, I, I guess semicolon, yeah have. things of that nature whereas linguistics is more about the actual language used okay I think um, stylistics also is, is yeah comma placement spelling so is
2: one of them more um, likely to be correlated with I don't know like is she well, saying that she's that's saying not that,
0: yeah she's saying that that's not scientific is oh, what she's gotcha, saying right. like okay. that's not scientific Chaski actually has a scientific method that would have enabled her to make a determination based on forensic linguis- linguistics but the defense didn't ask her to do that so she has
2: so they just wanted her to
0: rebut, to basically poke hold that there's no way Jim Fitzgerald could form that he could come to these okay. conclusions, which she did. She mm-hmm. didn't get, she went in there and explained it. Now she's got a method. Um, it's a syntactic analysis in which she uses advanced statistical procedures to determine authorship. Her method um, has five percent accuracy rate and it's passed um, a Daubert hearing. Okay. Does, do you know what Daubert is? Right? I do, but I don't know that Explain, our listeners do. Yeah. So um, there's two standards for whether or not evidence can make it into a court um, expert testimony and it's called the Frye standard or the Daubert. The Frye standard was first and I think Frye was developed in maybe 1923. And um, that's basically a standard that says if evidence or if a method, if science has widespread general acceptability in the field, it can be admitted into court. Later on, the Daubert standard passed. And the Daubert standard, I would say, is a little bit less restrictive. It gives the judge a little bit more leeway. Um, The judge is allowed to use not just, it doesn't have to have um solid acceptance by everyone in the field. It gives judges like a five factor prong, like they can consider, you know, what the error rate is and mm-hmm. if it's how many times it's been peer reviewed. But and- it doesn't have to be that they have to get five out of five. No. Okay. It's just saying, you know, the Fry standard makes it clear like it must have this. And the Daubert says, well, let's give the judge a little bit more leeway in deciding what can be expert evidence Which or what can be It is not
2: necessarily the best thing. Again, you're giving a lot of discretion to someone who's not a scientist.
0: You know? I think so too uh, I think so too um so you had asked also about the difference so unlike the forensic stylistics and that relies on um, word frequency mm-hmm. and spelling errors and comma placement and other stylistic issues Chasky's method is based on how we combine words into phrases and sentences okay so basically what makes individuals um, what makes individuals use of language distinctive is the pattern of simple and complex phrases used. Mm -hmm. So she is using the language that people use and the way they combine language and the way they speak to determine authorship. And she has a lot of credibility in her field. I have to say, they got an expert here. They got the top expert Mm -hmm. for the handwriting. And the jury found her uh, testimony credible as well. Um, I can tell you this offhand. The Mm -hmm. jury acquitted Melanie of all charges related to the anonymous communications. So that was the second indictment that she got. That was the second indictment. They they amended it and they added these these charges on. So okay. Carol comes in and she's a very strong expert. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know it is possible they can still do the analysis. Gotcha. So at trial,
2: she was found not guilty, not guilty of, of the anonymous communication. Correct. But it didn't matter because she was found guilty of murder at that <laughs> so, point,
0: right? It's like, okay. I, you know, so, um, okay. So this is one of the areas in which we're talking about the defense. And I think this was strong. They brought on, they bring in the best expert, but they bring it in for the smallest charge.
2: Yeah, that's kind of strange.
0: Like the like she's, you know, she's clearly the best. You have to read her work. That's I'm great. excited. Yeah, no, she's, she's yeah. fabulous. And you'll be talking to her
2: if I understand correctly.
0: We are. We have set up a couple of appointments to chat. Um, she is incredibly busy. She takes part in international arbitration. Yeah, okay. She's overseas a lot. I, I think she would like to help and would like to chat with us. Um, so far, it's just been a problem yeah. of getting it in.
2: Okay, so hopefully. Yeah, hopefully.
0: Next time on Direct Appeal, Melanie was convicted of murder and sentenced to life. She and her family are devastated, but they aren't giving up. They prepare for the next fight, her appeal. Direct Appeal is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. The story arc was written by Megan Sachs. Music and Underscore by Dessert Media. Recorded, mixed, and edited by Justin Kral at JC Studios. Special thanks to Alan Tuckerman, whose work was integral to this production.
2: To view photos, evidence, and engage with other listeners, visit directappealpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you
0: have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing tips at directappealpodcast.com.
2: You can also help us out by leaving a five-star review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen.
0: Before we go this week, we are really excited to bring you the trailer for the second season of Mile Marker 181 by Emily Nestor. Emily is a new friend who we met at CrimeCon, and despite her crazy schedule there, she was cool enough to meet up with us for a meal and some drinks and to share some of her inside tips on the podcasting world. I know many of you, just like us, have been eagerly awaiting season two of Mile Marker 181. So here it is.
3: Murder or a freak accident? A cover-up, or just rumor? On November 19, 2011, after a night out with friends, 20-year-old Jalea Davis was struck by her own car and found lying in the passing lane of I-77. Her car found three-tenths of a mile north of her body. Her clothes found lying over the guardrail. Her friends, the granddaughter of the former sheriff, and the son of a former police officer. The rumors? Running wild. My name is Emily, and this all took place in my hometown. So, I started digging. Mile Marker 181 is an investigative journey through the details surrounding the suspicious death of Jalea Davis, which was ultimately ruled an accident by the local sheriff's department. Each episode, I go over the case documents, compare timelines and alibis, analyze phone records, speak with Julia's family, and sometimes even uncover new information. You can listen to Mile Marker 181 anywhere you get your podcast. Listen to the facts and then decide for yourself, accident or murder.